नमस्ते एवरीवन वेलकम टू द चारवक पॉडकास्ट दिस इज योर होस्ट कुशल मेहरा ऑलराइट टुडे वी आर गोइंग टू बी टॉकिंग एंड डिस्कसिंग अ बुक इट्स कॉल्ड काबुल द अनटोल्ड स्टोरी ऑफ बाइडेंस फियास्को एंड द अमेरिकन वॉरियर्स हु फॉट टू द एंड एंड आई हैव विद मी द टू ऑथर्स ऑफ द बुक जेरी डन लीवी एंड जेम्स हसन गाइस वेलकम एंड थैंक्स फॉर कमिंग ऑन द पॉडकास्ट थैंक्स फॉर हैविंग अस प्लेजर टू बी हियर शॉ Yeah so I met Jerry and James in my visit in DC we had, first of all we had a great dinner together uh shout out to Rasika it was uh, uh, we had a great time the food was amazing uh Jerry and James you know it's amazing how how you meet people from different cultures and then you find out how many things we have in common and then you ask yourself why do we argue so much amongst each other uh, and and i look forward to meeting them again but then we started discussing the book well for people who don't know this is the hard copy of the book uh, you can buy it on kindle in india too uh, so guys first of all congratulations on the book i know it was just released uh, in the last few days so um, i always have to have this tradition on the charvak podcast every time i discuss a book my first by default question to either when it's a singular author or it's in your case it's multiple authors i ask them why it is uh, that they decided to write this book but before that uh, jerry first you and then james can you tell everybody a little bit about yourself your background absolutely yeah so so my name's jerry dunleavy um and i am currently uh, helping lead the afghanistan withdrawal investigation for the us house foreign affairs committee um on uh, you know for the uh, for the for the us congress um and so we are investigating um what we believe to be president biden's disastrous withdrawal from afghanistan and all of the consequences that have flowed from that um and i'll just note that i'm i'm just talking in my personal capacity as the author of the book and before uh i got this job on capitol hill i was an investigative reporter for the washington examiner where i wrote about the justice department national security issues and during 2021 i wrote a lot about the uh the collapse of afghanistan and the taliban takeover of the country um so that's kind of my story and uh So uh Shaw my name is James Hassan for the audience. I was a, an army officer before uh you know going to law school and practicing as an attorney but um I, I served in Afghanistan from 2014 to 2015 and I was on the uh Afghanistan Pakistan border um in Mos Khost province and Nangarhar province and uh I have a my extended family is uh kind of has a long tradition of military service and I still have family members um who are, are active duty including in the, the special forces communities and uh a lot of my close friends are there too so I've stayed very um deeply embedded in both the, the veteran and active duty communities and um, we uh you know when we started uh, kind of getting the idea to write the book part of one of the the prompts of that was that uh, like so many other american veterans I was trying to help rescue uh interpreters or american citizens um you know just do my my small part from um from the US to try and connect them to people who could get them out um and and that's you know just one step on kind of the whole book writing process which we could tell you about to answer your other question if you'd like sure 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 i want to know because you guys come from very different backgrounds right uh, jerry is an investigative journalist and you have obviously active military background so so how how did you guys decide to write this book like what's the story behind you two coming together to decide yeah. to write 
Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll start, Jerry. So we, uh, we've, we've been friends for, for a long time. And Afghanistan has always been one thing that we've both spoken about. Um, I, I remember meeting Jerry, I think in 2016 or 2017, and we kind of uh, bonded over a shared distaste for uh, the ISI and uh, you know, other, uh, um, and just, you know, Afghanistan in general, partly, or not distaste for Afghanistan, but uh, Jerry's brother served in Afghanistan and did several um, deployments there as well. Um, so we were, we were friends before this project started. And as we were watching things start to uh, come down um, you know, the pipeline, you kind of just see one, one district uh, fall after another in Afghanistan. Um, and really going back to the Doha agreement, I think that's uh, kind of when we first started discussing in detail mm -hmm. and, and kind of saying, well, this is inevitable, this is going to happen. Uh, and it became kind of this topic of conversation. Uh, and then uh, after after the collapse, we really we thought the American people aren't going to be told the full story if if we don't tell it, because the administration has no desire to tell it. And uh, the interesting thing is we thought that we knew a lot of that full story. And in the process of writing this book, we realized that we didn't even know a third of it. And uh, so that's one of the reasons that we wrote Kabul is that uh, we wanted people to be held accountable and we wanted to make sure this never happens again. I mean, James nailed it, right? Um, that That is why we wrote the book. James and I have been friends for a long time, but we wanted to write a book on Afghanistan for a long time. And obviously in 2021, as we watched President Biden make his announcement for a full US troop withdrawal, um, a conditionless withdrawal, um, and a withdrawal that didn't take into account uh, really any efforts on the part of the U.S. to keep the Afghan military on the battlefield fighting. Because um, when we pulled U.S. troops, we also pulled U.S. logistics, uh, U.S. contractors, U.S. ISR, everything that we had built the Afghan military around. And we, we pulled that um, in rapid fashion. And, you know, the Afghan military was already very weak, and we really kicked some weakened legs out from under them. And uh, the Taliban took over very quickly. And James and I, we were, you know, we basically saw that this was going to happen, that the Taliban was going to take over. And um, we decided that a book needed to be written about it um, to tell the story of um, how 20 years of war, uh, 20 years of mistakes, 20 years of fighting and 20 years of dying um, in large part because of a decision in our view by President Biden resulted in um, the Taliban running the country, um, which is a terrible way for things to end up, but is the way that they ended up because of this. Now, you you mentioned the name of President Biden and you start your book with chapter one, which in, in a very funny sort of way, you, you title the chapter wrong about everything. <laughs> exactly. Now, now it's it's honestly look i don't follow american politics at uh, at this granular level but you guys start from 1975 or 72 right uh, the first paragraph i remember distinctly the first paragraph starts with his tenure in 1972 and then you go all the way now to 2023 and you kind of map his political career now it's very important to to talk about this bit but if, if you don't mind me asking, like, what if somebody comes and say, oh, you guys just wrote this because you don't like Biden? 
because mm-hmm. you start the book with that chapter. Yeah, I, I think we we started the the book with that chapter because we thought it was it was very illuminating context, it was important context for you know why Biden ended up making the decision that he did, um, and that's what you know we mentioned mentioned 1972. Um, that was when uh, Vietnam was the U.S. involvement in Vietnam was ending, and Joe Biden came in as a young senator looking to make his mark and the uh, anti-war movement had pretty much already culminated successfully. And so he put his flag down on making sure that the United States are campaigning against the United States taking any uh, South Vietnamese who served alongside the U.S. military. He said, we don't have a moral obligation to one or a thousand and one South Vietnamese allies, uh, despite our promises. And uh, that was just a very you know, eerie foreshadowing of the decision he made almost five decades later. But um, to your point about uh, you know, whether it's a partisan book or not, we um, we try to tell it without fanfare or favor. Uh, in fact, we, we come down pretty hard on uh, members of, of the Trump administration as well. Yeah, um, I know. I was just going to say that. Um, Secretary Pompeo, I think, you know, with the decisions, uh, you know, to Zalve Kalazad put him in charge um, and the Doha agreement in particular. So, uh, we try to be very clear-eyed about it, but at the same time, um, when you're the commander in chief, the buck stops here. And um, no matter which side you fall on about whether we should have withdrawn or stayed, uh, things didn't have to go the way they did. And uh, the the vast vast majority of the blame on that falls directly on Joe Biden's shoulders. And you know, the only thing that I would really add there is that. Like James said, we have an entire chapter on the Doha Agreement, which was obviously a very flawed deal between the U.S. and the Taliban um, during the Trump administration. But the the deal did have some conditions, right? The, the, the Taliban was required to do some things in exchange for the U.S. agreeing to withdraw. And one of those things that the Taliban agreed to do was to make sure that al-Qaeda wasn't going to be able to threaten the U.S. or the West. And obviously, the Taliban's alliance with al-Qaeda um, has really never wavered. It, it didn't waver uh, before 9-11 when the Taliban was harboring uh, al-Qaeda as they carried out attacks against U.S. embassies in Africa. They struck the USS Cole, obviously, the devastating attacks of 9-11. And the Taliban didn't, didn't uh, break with al-Qaeda um, before we invaded, you know, we asked them to turn over Os- Osama bin Laden and Al Qaeda leaders, and the Taliban refused. The Taliban was willing to spend 20 years um, out in the cold, out in the mountains, out in the hinterlands of Afghanistan, rather than breaking that alliance. And the Doha Agreement, you know, required them to make sure that uh, that Al Qaeda wasn't going to threaten us, and they they never fulfilled that promise. And so, as flawed as the Doha Agreement was. Um, when President Biden came into office, he's he's like to point to the Doha agreement as being why he had to do what he did, do this conditionless U.S. troop withdrawal um, without a real plan about fulfilling our promises to Americans who ended up being left behind without fulfilling our promises to the tens of thousands of Afghan allies that we had there. But the Taliban was not following the Doha agreement. And so the U.S. was not required to do that. And James mentioned Zalmay Khalizad, you know, he was sort of the architect of the Doha agreements during the Trump administration, but the Biden administration kept Zalmay Khalizad on and even praised his his vital work. That was uh, what Secretary Antony Blinken called it and other members of the 
Biden administration called in. And so, you know, for better, or for worse, and obviously we think it was for worse, uh, the Biden administration embraced uh, Zalmay Khalizad and, and sort of took that on as their own. Um, and so, you know, ultimately, um, a U.S. president has uh, has power over U.S. foreign policy as a commander in chief. And um, this was ultimately Biden's uh, decision. And despite 20 years, of course, of mistakes, this was Biden's final decision that that resulted in the Taliban taking over and us seeing the disaster, disaster that we all witnessed in August 2021. Before we get into the Afghanistan bit, I, I'm really fascinated that uh... You know, you guys mentioned in the book uh, on page seven that his first foreign policy tour was actually that of China. And uh, he's been consistently wrong on China, too, where in 2011, uh, you guys quote him that um, there's nothing inevitable about China and the United States not being as cooperative as other nations. China is not our enemy. And then uh, you quote him stating, let me be clear, I believed in 1979 and said so then, and I believe now that a rising China is a positive development, not only for the people of China, but for the United States and the world as a whole. Um, I fully understand and I'm not second guessing one child policy, stuff like that. Now, very interesting. China itself thinks that their one child policy has been a disaster, but uh, yeah. Biden doesn't. So obviously Biden understands China better than just Chinese understand China and Chinese policy making. That is very interesting. But Let's stick to this. James, I want to ask your opinion because you are from a military background and you guys have a subtitle there. The military doesn't fuck around with me. You guys have a dedicated bit over there. And usually I've seen the writing pattern is usually you guys have a subtitle and two paragraphs. But in this one, you have like a couple of pages. And the most interesting bit I want to read this is... Um, you know, Biden's so funny. Biden's career in public office has spanned eight presidents, five popes, and pop artists from the beaches to Beyonce. <laughs> Through it all, he has consistently voiced distrust of military leaders. Ahead of a key meeting with the Joint Chiefs of Staff early in Barack Obama's presidency, Biden warned the new commander in chief, quote, you got to stand up to these guys because if you don't, they're going to treat you like you're their puppy for the next three years. Obama coolly replied, you know, Joe, it would be fun to let you be president for just five minutes to see how you'd handle it. Boy, did he handle it well, James? What do you think? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, it, it's it's remarkable that um, you know, and I can't get inside Joe Biden's psychology, uh, but it uh, it is remarkable how consistent that he has been um, in, in thinking that he was uh, the smartest man in the room when it came to, to military strategy. Um, and uh, and rejected. Um, he has a long track record of basically just not trusting and overruling or you know rejecting um, the advice from military leaders. And I think uh, you know. I remember the um, uh, memoirs of Bob Gates, who is Obama's Secretary of Defense, saying uh, recounting that you know he thought that Joe Biden was uh, quote subjecting um, Obama to. A, water torture uh, in the way of saying over and over, you can't trust these guys, they're gonna screw you. Um, and I think it's very clear that, that he had a chip on his shoulder that his advice on Afghanistan when he was vice president uh, was uh, was rejected in favor of the advice of you know, the Joint Chiefs. And so then when he came in, uh, he, didn't, he didn't bother to, to stop and listen. 
In fact, one of the things we detail in Kabul is one of the very first things that he did when he got in office uh, was ask his advisors, you know, in the very first week, how quickly can we get out of Afghanistan? He didn't ask, how can we do it in a responsible manner? He didn't ask, how can we do it while keeping our promises? He didn't ask, you know, what's the military's uh, you know, perspective on the best way to do this. It was simply, how quickly can we do it? Um, and he's the commander-in-chief. It's his prerogative. But uh, we, we can all see how well that worked out. And I'm, I'm glad, Kishal, that you mentioned as well the, uh, the section that we have there on, on China, because I do think that it's extremely illuminating. I mean, President Biden never understood, I think, what China wanted and what Ch China's leaders wanted. And, um, you know, Obviously, a, a rising China um, is a challenge to the United States, but uh, President Biden never understood that um, for decades. Um, and his praise of the one-child policy, or you know, his his refusal to question China's one-child policy was was you know illuminating as well. Because we, you know, like you said, even even China has now admitted that the one-child policy has done real damage to to China um, and they're facing real demographic problems because of it, perhaps permanent ones. Um, and of course, the way that the one child policy was implemented, I mean, you know, mass propaganda, mass surveillance, forced sterilizations, forced abortions. And this is something that President Biden was saying that he, you know, he wasn't questioning. Um, and so we, we found that very illuminating because it just goes to the broader point that that President Biden didn't really understand um, these these foreign countries that that the U.S. was was having to deal with. He didn't understand China, and he, he certainly didn't understand Afghanistan and the Taliban. He never understood what it was that the Taliban wanted, which was you know a total conquest of Afghanistan. And um, you know, as we lay out in the book, with uh, Pakistani intelligence backing, um, the Taliban was able to to get what it had been fighting for for 20 years, which is to come back into power. Now, Jerry, it's very interesting because uh, the image of America in front of Indians these days on social media, I don't know if you noticed, Sagar also had recently, Sagar and Jethi had mm -hmm. recently come down to India for his wedding. By the way, congratulations, Sagar. Um, uh, and Sagar tweeted this. He's like, the hostility to the American state in India has increased in the last eight years when I meet people. Uh, and one of the reasons is the constant chiding of America. You know, America tends to chide, especially the Biden administration. The chiding under the Biden administration has been kind of on steroids, of, if I was to use uh, that word. But, and, but in your book, when uh, Holbrook uh, says... Um, you know, he tries to give the example or, or the analogy of the plight of women under the Taliban regime. Uh, Biden says, quote, I'm not sending my boy back there to risk his life on behalf of women's rights. I just won't. Uh, it just won't work. That's not what they're there for. It's very interesting that they keep. Uh, I mean, so so what's the point? Like, what is the American foreign policy then? Well, I think Biden is pretty confused on it. And I, I personally don't understand his hostility towards um towards India. And I think that it's um, a pretty significant mistake because um, India is a, a powerful and growing in power, uh, in power country. Um, and I, I think that the U.S. Um, should have its, you know, should be reaching its hand out to India, especially as I think, you know, 
India and the United States are, are both facing a growing challenge from, from China uh, as China gets um, not just more powerful, but more dangerous and, uh, more and, is, is, and more aggressive and is, is, is setting its sights uh, beyond China's own, own borders and around the world. And so I, I think that that's a, a real mistake uh, that President Biden is making. And like you said, it is stark when uh, you see the, the Biden administration chide India, but then President Biden um, also saying that, you know, we shouldn't care about the, you know, the, the, the plight of, uh, of, of women um, in Afghanistan. Now, of course, with the Taliban back in charge, 50% of that country is, has no rights, no freedom, no education, and uh, unfortunately, no future. And so it is a very uh, complicated, perhaps contradictory view of things that, that President Biden seems to have. My aim is not to put America down or Americans down. My point is, I hope Americans understand where other people look at them from. Because when people from India, who I hope read this book because it is a must read, when they read these blurbs like I was reading, you know, it's not like... A, for me, I'm reading uh, these the these things as an Indian. And when I read these statements made by Biden, it's just in my brain, I'm like, then why does he tell us all the time? And mm -hmm. over here is making the statement. I hope you uh, get where I'm coming from, James. Oh, yeah, 100%. I think Jerry uh, summed it up best when he just said it's completely contradictory in a lot of ways. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it, it's, it's very difficult to square or reconcile. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and that's that's consistent kind of throughout a lot of the way that this administration has handled things as well. Uh, you know, they um, they, uh, you know, describe the Taliban as, as businesslike and professional and try and use that to, to whitewash uh, the fact that their own failings led them to need to um, or, or believe that they needed to rely on the Taliban. They describe them as businesslike and professional while they're, you know, quite literally um, beating um, Afghans who are trying to get to the gates, beating um, Americans even that are trying to get to the gates, executing Afghan allies in plain sight. Uh, it, it's just, it, it's, it's, it's craven. There's just kind of no other way to describe, um, you know, the, the speaking out of both sides of your mouth in this way. Yeah. Now, James, I want to spend some time on the Doha chapter because especially the bits on Trump, because you did mention you guys criticized Trump. Now, in the a bad idea abandoned, you, you know, it's not like you're praising Trump. You guys are still criticizing Trump when you say that he ultimately chose to keep a small contingent of 2,500 to 3,500 troops in the country, avoiding the mistake that Biden would soon make. But the point is, Trump actually wanted to do the same thing that Biden did. So it's not like he was any better in this subject. He just gave in to the pressure from the military advisors the, who, who basically put pressure on him and said, listen, you have to make sure some basic contingent stays there, right? Or am I misunderstanding it? No, I don't, I don't think you're misunderstanding it at all. Um, and I think, you know, it, it was the same. It was, it was also a bad idea then. A bad idea is a bad idea, no matter whether it um, comes from a you know, uh, one president or the other. Um, and uh, I think, you know, but the one key difference is, um, you know, going back to what we talked about a little bit ago in that um, Joe Biden wasn't willing to be talked out of his bad ideas. Um, 
And you know, you mentioned the 2,500 to 3,000 uh, troops that were left as a small contingent. That force was necessary to to maintain and hold Bagram Air Base, uh, which you know, the military had already con concluded under a whole lot of feasibility studies, including um, an Obama administration feasibility study, that any evacuation, even if you're going to zero, needed to hold Bagram at least until it was complete. Uh, but the President Biden wanted uh, under 1,000. He wanted to be able to say we only have you know, 600 left, which is what we had in August uh, when everything fell apart. Um, and you can't hold Bagram with that. And so because of that, he not only decided not to keep um, a, you know, small contingent there, you know, for, for the time being, you know, in for the next several years, but not even for the next several months while we were planning to withdraw. So it, it uh, um, just on multiple levels ended up um, catastrophically worse. And I think Jerry can actually speak to this pretty well because um, when we were researching the book, uh, he was, he was down in the minutia of every um, last aspect of the Doha agreement. And we spoke with um, a lot of diplomats who were actually in the room during that time, and which, which was a very, very illuminating perspective. So I'll, I'll kick it to Jerry. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we do have an entire chapter on the book on Doha and we do lay out how, how it was, how it was flawed. And, and I think how the, the Trump administration um, overstated, um, you know, what the U.S. had gotten out of the Taliban, for sure. Um, but, you know, Zalmay Khalizad was sort of the architect of that agreement, and he he excluded the Afghan government from those negotiations, which I think was one of the many um, terrible aspects of it. Um, but, you know, President Trump, I, I think that he was very much inclined to do what, what President Biden ended up doing, which was to just do a rapid withdrawal and just be done with it. And I think if he had done that, then under his watch, um, he would have seen the rapid collapse of Afghanistan, the Taliban takeover. But, you know, to President Trump's credit, he was willing to listen to the military leaders who said, look, this will be a disaster if you do it. And so at the end of the day, I think he might have been inclined to do it, but he, he didn't do it. Um, and we did have a, you know, a U.S. troop presence uh, still there in Afghanistan. And President Biden, when he came into office, um, he was told the same thing. If you do this, it will be a disaster. And, you know, President Biden just wasn't willing to listen. I think part of it was that chip on his shoulder that he had about the U.S., uh, you know, military leadership and the generals. But also it was just he had just decided this is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to make my mark on this war. Um, there have been, uh, I'm now the fourth president and I am, uh, this is what I'm going to do. He set September 11th, 2021 as the, uh, the date for the final U S troop withdrawal, which was puzzling, um, to say the least, uh, especially to Americans, um, because that date, you know, uh, is a, a pretty painful anniversary, um, with the, you know, 3000 Americans and others who were killed that day. And. The other problem with picking that date um, was that that was right in the middle of Afghan fighting season. Um, we had been fighting in Afghanistan for 20 years, and we knew that uh, in Afghanistan, the fighting is, uh, is fiercest um, during the spring and summer. Um, and that is that time frame, April 14th, the spring, when uh, was when President Biden made his decision to withdraw U.S. troops and the summer 
September 11th was uh, when he set the withdrawal date for um, to for that withdrawal to be complete. And so because of that happening right in the middle of Afghan fighting season, as U.S. troops were pulled out, along with everything that I mentioned earlier, logistics, contractors, ISR, everything that the Afghan military needed, the Afghan military collapsed um, in the midst of this fierce Afghan fighting season fighting. And by picking that 20th anniversary date for the withdrawal, what President Biden actually ensured was that on the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, the group that had been protecting Al-Qaeda on 9-11, the Taliban, was now back in charge of Afghanistan. Yeah. I mean, actually, now that I think about it, that you mentioned it, it's kind of sick that he chose September 11th as a day. It's kind of a kick in the nuts to all the American people. If you ask me personally, I don't know. I mean, uh, I guess American society has come a long way that even September 11th and the withdrawal. And I mean, what in his eyes, was he thinking that this is a victory? We went there, we won, now we are going? Is that what he was thinking? I think it's 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 impossible to uh, to provide a sensible explanation for something that makes zero sense. But I, <laughs> that seems <laughs> it seems to be what uh, what he was thinking. And then he moved it up uh, because he started getting blowback, uh, and so then he he moved it up arbitrarily a few months later to uh, August thirty first. So I think he he then realized, just like you said, that everybody viewed that as just a bizarre uh, decision and kind of just a sucker punch to, to everyone who had uh, lost uh, loved ones in, in 9-11 and, and fought afterwards. Uh, so it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's best I can describe it. It's just yeah, it, yeah, in an in Indian context, this would be like 15th August or 14th August is Pakistan Independence Day. And then the government of India thinks this to be something awesome that, you know, India and Pakistan got uh, partitioned and and the bloodshed that happened during the partition. And then then we go about celebrating something of that sort. I mean, even as an Indian, when I heard this, I was like, what is wrong with this person? Why is he doing this? Like, uh, have they lost all connection or connect with an average American or or have have they convinced themselves that the American actually does not care about September 11th anymore? Is that the assumption? It's 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 tough to understand because, you know, and we talk about 9-11. I, I think that you have to talk about 9-11 in this book, Kabul, to, to understand everything. And we, we, we talk about how the Taliban was integral to al-Qaeda's success. I mean, it, it truly was. Without the safe haven that the Taliban was giving uh, al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, um, it wouldn't have been able to carry out the attacks that it was carrying out around the world in the 1990s you know, hitting the U.S. embassies in Africa and um, and killing U.S. service members on the USS Cole in the year 2000 and then carrying out the 9-11 attacks. And, uh, you know, the Taliban uh, uh, was fighting. People might remember this. The Northern Alliance was was uh, was, you know, the, the force that was still fighting the Taliban in the late 1990s. And it was led by a guy named Ahmed Shah Massoud, who was a very, very sharp, uh, very effective uh, military uh, leader. And right before 9-11, I mean, it was just a few days before, might have been a couple days before, might have been the day before 9-11, um, Al-Qaeda 
uh, assassinated Ahmed Shah Massoud right before the 9-11 attacks. Um, and so you can see there even how uh, Al-Qaeda was basically helping the Taliban out by taking out their biggest enemy right before 9-11, right before, you know, everyone knew that now the U.S. is going to be is going to be coming for you. And the Taliban refused to turn over Osama bin Laden. They refused to ever break their alliance. Um, and so the Taliban is wrapped up in in 9-11 because it was, of course, 19 al-Qaeda terrorists who flew those planes and people like Khalid Sheikh Mohammed who planned the attack and Osama bin Laden who planned the attack. But the Taliban was helping al-Qaeda and giving them safe harbor as they were carrying out these attacks. And so to pick the 20th anniversary as a date uh, to do something that very likely would result in a victory for the Taliban, and of course did result in a victory for the Taliban, it's not that it just doesn't make sense. It's it's that it is, it's grotesque um, because it, it turned the 20th anniversary of 9-11 into a Taliban celebration running the country of Afghanistan now. And it's, it, it was just, it was just sick, but that's just, that's just one piece of the, just every decision that we lay out in the book, Kabul, you can just see, it's just, it's mind boggling why we were making the decisions that, that we were making. And every decision that we made just made things a little bit worse. Yeah, and I want to pick up on a little bit of what uh, Jerry said. Uh, yeah, in 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 Kabul, we we mentioned about how the the Taliban interpreted this date to be symbolic in their own way too. They 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 celebrated the fact that he took um, that, he, that he set nine eleven the anniversary of nine eleven as as a withdrawal date. So they understood the significance of it. But I think also this is in some ways connected to other things that we point out in Kabul, which is that uh, you know, it, when President Biden announced his, his unequivocal withdrawal, he said Al-Qaeda is gone. And, and that's, that was certainly not true. We were killing Al-Qaeda before the Doha agreements. We were killing Al-Qaeda after Doha. And in fact, um, now that you know, uh, the, the Taliban has taken control, there are members of the Taliban government who are Al-Qaeda members. Uh, but perhaps I, I think the only way that you could see this perverse logic is that he had this falsehood that Al-Qaeda was gone. And therefore, if Al-Qaeda was gone, then, you know, 9-11 is, is like our great victory uh, uh, anniversary. But, but it, it still made no sense. But I think in some ways it kind of goes back to just kind of that, that, that perverse web of falsehoods about uh, the decision to withdraw. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 actually insane, and it's not like there is not. You guys have shown enough evidence. Like you, you guys talk about uh, uh, McKenzie, right? Um, telling uh, Biden that uh, just like Trump, at least make sure the twenty five hundred troops stay there. Uh, otherwise, even uh, the base base level uh, that is needed for smooth functioning of operations even in terms of evacuation of people back and forth is not going to happen. We need 2,500 troops and they didn't even do that. Now, now let's focus as to, uh, I'm basically talking about four, five, six, seven, especially five, six, seven, right? Chapter five, six, seven of your book. By the way, it was a very horrifying read. I, I have to state this on the record. Chapter five, six, seven made me angry. 
and and made me angry and i'll give you the reasons why made me angry first as a human being that what 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 has happened over there people deserve better than this not only just to the americans who were there mm-hmm. to the average afghans who 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 basically like does the american psyche understand how those afghans who helped them would look at them for the rest of their life do they even get it well i think i think a lot of everyday americans definitely did the veterans who served there who tried to to rescue them definitely did the the administration clearly didn't um, they were getting warned over and over that um, the the process for evacuating uh, the the special uh, interest visas the the SIVs the interpreters and others that served alongside of us that that process was painfully slow that uh, that the government was going to collapse and that people were going to be left behind and they didn't they didn't plan for it at all um, and when in fact as we detail in Kabul uh, when the military tried to push them to to plan for what was called a it's called the non-combatant evacuation operation um, the the military term is NEO is the acronym. They said, you know, we need to plan for a NEO. The uh, members of the State Department said, don't say the word NEO. Um, if we have to do a NEO, then we've failed. Uh, and so it, it was just this perverse lack of planning. But to, to what you pointed out, there's those chapters in five, six, seven, um, you know, it was horrific for what uh, people had to go through. Um, there were babies trampled outside the gates. There were um, women throwing themselves on the razor wire, either to outside the gates, either to try to um, to kill themselves so they wouldn't have to go back uh, through Taliban checkpoints that just brutalized them, or um, to, to hurt themselves enough that they got medical attention inside the base. Um, there were there were mothers trying to throw their babies over the wall, um, and uh, and there were people being executed and beaten in plain sight. And uh, but the, the other point of this as well is that um, it, it just was a horrific and brutal thing for those. Um, soldiers and Marines at the gates who were trying to save people to have to witness day after day. Um, and, you know, if when there's 100,000 people outside the gates and you only have air capacity for um, so many of them, then, you know, people are going to be, unfortunately, some people are going to be left behind just as a matter, a matter of uh, basic math. And, uh, and to have to, you know, turn people away if they didn't meet the criteria because they wouldn't be admitted by the State Department anyway. Um, it, with full knowledge that they may be killed later um, was it just a tremendous moral injury. And that was the term when we talked to uh, a lot of these young men and women that came up over and over and over again it was moral injury um, it, because they were they had their hands tied behind their backs while awful things were happening in front of them. Yeah. Yeah, and you know what I would add to that is that the the this the situation and chaos that we saw, part of that happened because of the US putting itself in a position because of President Biden's decisions where we were having to rely on the Taliban to provide security outside that airport. So th- because of the decisions that President Biden made and the way that he withdrew without having a plan about how to get Americans out, about without having a plan about how to get our Afghan allies out, we our presence in Afghanistan was reduced to an embassy and an airport. And the embassy had to get abandoned. And so all we had was an airport. And the Taliban were controlling not just, you know, everything surrounding the airport and not just 
the city of Kabul, but essentially the entire country now. And so everyone that we had to get out, the Americans that were being stranded and all of those Afghan allies that we had made promises to over the years, they were all now trapped behind enemy lines and were at the mercy of the Taliban letting them through that Taliban gauntlet. Um, and so that was a, a terrible situation for the United States to be put in or for the United States to put itself in, I think would be more accurate. And we point out in the book that if we had maintained Bagram Air Base, which is a, a massive air base that's um, you know, within driving distance of Kabul, the evacuation would have been safer. It would have been more orderly. We would have been able to get way more people out. Um, and we wouldn't have seen the sorts of the scenes of chaos and death that we saw. It's also possible that if we had maintained that Bagram Air Base and maintained our air assets there and had maintained our support for the Afghan military there, it's very possible that the Taliban wouldn't have been able to take Kabul. Um, and again, that would have made it much easier to get Americans and to get these Afghan allies out. And another thing, and we can talk maybe a little bit more about this, but in Bagram Air Base um, was a prison that held thousands of ISIS-K fighters, uh, dozens of members of Al-Qaeda, and uh, thousands of uh, Taliban fighters. And that prison um, was at Bagram. And inside that prison, among those ISIS-K fighters, was a man named Abdul Rahman Aligari, who I would love to talk to a little bit more about. But Abdul Rahman Aligari was the man who successfully carried out that terrorist attack at Abbey Gate at Kabul Airport and killed those 13 Americans and 200 Afghans. And so the simple fact is that if we had simply held on to Bagram, not only would, would we have been able to fulfill more of our promises to the Americans, the Afghan allies, but the guy who killed those 13, those 13 Americans and killed 200 Afghans, he would have been sitting behind bars still, rather than being able to be out there threatening innocent lives. And if, if I may add to that, um, I think could be you know, of particular interest to some of your listeners is that um, this, this ISIS fighter, um, Abdul Rahman Aligari, um, was rolled up. He was, he was seized in a joint CIA-Indian um, operation in 2019 because he was planning a, um, a suicide attack in a, a complex suicide attack um, in uh, New Delhi, I believe. And uh, then the CIA asked for custody to be transferred, uh, for him to be transferred to their custody. And that happened. And then he was, um, he was imprisoned at Bagram. And then he, uh, you know, as Jerry mentioned, he then he was freed, and eleven days later, he was at the gates of Abbey Gate, um, blowing people up. So, you know, this is just uh, just another, um, you know, just horrific side effect of this of this failure plan, but also this this willful failure to even look reality in the eye or or play it straight with the American people, because throughout the, the you know the final month or so leading up to the the collapse. The, the administration kept saying, you know, this is not going to be like Saigon, you know, when you saw American helicopters taking off through for the embassy in Vietnam. This isn't going to be, you know, this isn't going to be something that the Taliban takes over over the course of a weekend. Lo and behold, they literally took over over the course of a yeah. weekend. Um, but what it did is it gave a lot of people, you know, some of these 
some American workers who were working as, as aid workers. Uh, it gave uh, Afghans who were still waiting on their final approval for visas, this false sense of, of time that, you know, it's not happening yet. And, and you know, so you're okay. Uh, and then by the time it happened over the course of 48 hours, uh, now all of a sudden the Taliban were standing between them um, and safety. Yeah, and it, you know what frustrates me is, and you guys say, Biden promised that he would, quote, not conduct a hasty rush to exit. Yeah. And yeah. that's exactly what he did. It's exactly what he did. I mean, he made a lot of promises in 2021 that he that he didn't follow through on. He promised it wouldn't be a, a, a hasty rush to the exit, which it was. He promised uh, that, you know, this isn't going to be like Saigon, which... It was, it was actually worse than Saigon. Um, he promised uh, that he would stay, that the US would stay until we had gotten all the Americans out. And that was a lie as well. And so there were a lot of promises that President Biden was making and he just wasn't fulfilling them um, because he was so dead set on what he had decided that he wasn't willing to consider for even a second that he had maybe made a mistake. And to, to add a tiny little bit of context to that, one thing that we, an anecdote that we, um, we cover in Kabul is when he was trying to argue for President Obama to, fulfill the, to conduct exactly the decision that he later did, that Biden later did as president, uh, he, uh, Richard Holbrook, who was uh, an Obama uh, appointee at the time, said, well, wait a second, what about all the women and children, everyone that we've made promises to? And uh, according to Holbrook, Biden responded, well, well, screw it. We got away with it in Saigon, didn't we? Uh, which, you know, if it, it, it cast serious doubt on whether he even en- intended to fulfill any of those promises. Like, this is where, you know, I'm reminded of what was a famous Kissinger quote that, you know, being enemies with America is dangerous, but being friends with America is even worse than being enemies with America. And this is, you know, unfortunately, I don't know how to say this, but the entire, you know, when I was reading your book, when I was going through this, right, when I was going through this, that Kissinger quote kept on coming in my head as an Indian. I'm like, can we trust the Americans? (laughs) Could we trust the Americans? Well, and that's one thing that we talk about a little bit at the end is that this has just incredible third and fourth, you know, order effects on our, our allies, our standing, and also what encouraged our adversaries to do. Uh, Jerry is kind of the, between the two of us, more of the CCP expert, um, but I'll let him talk on this in a second, but they, they from the moment that this happened, um, the, the CCP immediately started threatening Taiwan and say, see, you can't count on America. You guys are next. Um, and they even referred to this as the quote unquote Kabul moment. Um, and you look at Russia and Ukraine, um, again, as we detail in Kabul, the buildup of forces, the kind of the secondary buildup of forces that Russia uh, put on the border with Ukraine started in September of 2021, right after the collapse. So I'll kick it to Jerry, but. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, this was, this was the American troops and service members on the ground, the, the, the heroic actions that they were taking to get Americans and to get their Afghan allies out, and the actions by the private 
and veteran-led uh, American groups to try to get their interpreters out and to try to get uh, Americans out. That was that was America at its very best. I mean, the, your, the, the actions being taken by ordinary average Americans, whether they were helping in the United States or whether they were helping on the ground at Kabul airport, that, that was, that was America at its best. And it really was truly heroic. And they, they really did get a lot of people out, but tens of thousands of Afghan allies and many hundreds of Americans were also left behind. And that was because this withdrawal um, was the American government at its very worst. Um, and it was, you know, seen, I think worldwide as a, as a betrayal um, to to our allies. Um, and like James mentioned, China especially really tried to take advantage of this. Um, we have an, you know, an entire chapter laying out how the, the, the Chinese Communist Party used this to threaten Taiwan. Like James said, you know, repeatedly, um, Chinese officials and Chinese state propaganda uh, saying to the Taiwan, to the Taiwans that what happened to Afghanistan will happen to you if you try to count on the Americans. They will not. Uh, they will not be by your side. Look at what happened to Afghanistan. That's coming for you. And they call it the Kabul moment. And they called it the Kabul moment in August 2021. And during this uh, second anniversary of the Taliban takeover, the Chinese Foreign Ministry yet again, you know, revived that, calling it the the, the Kabul moment, and yet again using it. Um, to try to trash America standing on the world stage and as they continue their military buildup and continues their threats against Taiwan. And so, you know, this was a, we, the Biden administration handed the Chinese government a gigantic propaganda victory that they will continue to try to use to undermine Taiwan, um, to undermine uh, the, the friendship between the United States and Taiwan, and to try to set Taiwan up for failure um, for if and, in my view, when China tries to move and invade Taiwan. You know what bothers me in this entire process is like uh, one of my criticisms is I'm a pro-West Indian. That's one of my criticisms that I get from a certain sect. And and I and I've always been open. Like when I met you guys, I'm very pro-West. I mean, you could have made out by my conversations, but I'm very hostile to the American state at the same time. Because in my brain, as you guys said, the average American or the average Westerner and the American state apparatus are two very different animals. And I have understood this over my 12 to 15 years of reading, experiencing, doing a little bit of political activism, content creation. I, I have trained my brain to distinguish between the two that when I meet average Americans like Jerry and James, I'm a very different person. I talk to them in a very different way. But when it comes to the American state, sometimes you might look at my content and like, hang on, he's talking about the same country. I'm like, yeah, I'm talking about your state. And I, and I will quote your book to talk about your own state because it's so irritating for me as an Indian. I'm like, how do we trust these people? They don't understand their policy. And, and look, the world will have a policeman, no matter what people want to say. And I don't know how to say this to Americans. We don't want China or Russia to be the world policeman. And India, as an Indian, let me put it on record, I have nothing against Russia. I am stating this on, I'm not saying it is Jerry's view or James' views. But my view is very clear. I don't care. I'm not very anti-Russia either. I'm not anti-America either. I'm just 
I'm Indian. I don't care. Like I have a different world view, right? I have a different world view. But the point is, the world needs a policeman. America, as of now, all things considered, has to be that policeman. And if the world's policeman is going to behave like this, well, best of luck is all I can say. Because like one thing that disturbed me to my core was, how the hell, James, and you're from a military background, how can the Biden administration botch up something as basic as their assessment of the Afghan troop number? How can they botch up that? That that irritated me the most. Like it is 300,000 strong and then they find out it's not 300,000 strong. How can they be so stupid? I think it's, I think it's willful stupidity, to be honest, which is, which is almost worse. And the question is, you know, I, I you know, whether someone's just simply um, naive and dense or they actually are, are uh, trying to actively mislead. Either way, you're getting in a bad situation. But I, I don't know which one is, 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 is scarier. But yeah, to, to your point about the 300,000, that, that was something that we detailed length in Kabul. That they, um, yeah, and, and to, but um, the military did have a lot of uh, information that this wasn't, Correct internal studies and and they knew that the problem of these ghost units, which were uh, Afghan army units that existed only on paper, so that uh, you know somebody could kind of pocket the salaries, um, was a well known phenomenon. Uh, but they the uh, the administration, especially, and those that um, you know, like General Milley um, and Secretary Austin, uh, who had kind of a an interest in just repeating the, uh, the the party line um, decided to say you know this is this is 300,000 strong and there were two problems with that one was the ghost units we talked about um, and the fact that uh, throughout the, the the fighting the uh, like the Afghan uh, military was taking tons of casualties they were also had plagued with a lot of desertions so the number the actual number was even smaller than um, than you know, even what the true number was at the beginning. But they also folded in things like Afghan local police and Afghan you know, um, border police into that 300,000 figure, which uh, you know, I imagine if we were saying you know, the US military is uh, 5 million strong because we're counting you know, police departments in Illinois. It, it makes no sense. Um, and so I think it was, it was um, it was it was it was false, and they knew it was false, but they needed to be able to sell the American people on this idea that they were getting out. And um, it's one thing to put that decision in front of everyone and say, "Hey, this, these are the likely outcomes," but they didn't do that. Instead, they said everything's going to be fine. And it was basically, "How long can we kick the can down the road until we're out of here?" And just to add to that, you know, part of why lying about the the size and strength of the Afghan military, why that was so dangerous, is that. The Biden administration's entire strategy was centered around the Afghan military continuing to fight and keeping the Taliban at bay as we very, very, very slowly kind of sort of started to get around to getting some of the Afghan allies out, right? The entire strategy was built around the Afghan military continuing to fight, which is why you had President Biden and the people around him claiming that the Afghan military was 300,000 strong, which, I mean, it wasn't even close to that. But they would say that to basically make their strategy seem smart, right? Well, 300,000 strong Afghan military against 
they would say something like 70 or 80,000 Taliban. How could the Afghan military lose? Well, the Afghan military wasn't 300,000 strong. And we were centering our U.S. strategy, such as it was, around this fake number. Um, and, you know, Milley uh, even claimed that the Afghan military and police combined was something like 325,000 to 350,000 strong. So you became up with an even bigger number that was just even more off, you know? Well, sure, why not? Let's inflate it even more, you know? And and this was this was dangerous because it was giving everybody a completely false sense of the reality on the ground because the reality on the ground was that the Afghan military had been built had been built to function around US support. When we pulled US troops, we pulled all of that support. And so it didn't really matter how large the Afghan military was, we pulled what it relied upon. But on top of us kicking their legs out or pulling a piece out of the Jenga pile and watching it all fall, we were also inflating the numbers of the Afghan military that we had just uh, debilitated. So it, it was it was very dangerous and it, it was a big contributor to the collapse. Yeah, I mean, just as you were saying this, I got reminded of this bit in your book, which says on August 14th, Biden gave a speech in which he sought to defend his withdrawal while shifting the blame for the debacle to Trump, declaring, quote, I have authorized the deployment of approximately 5,000 U.S. troops to make sure we can have an orderly and safe drawdown of U.S. personnel and other allied personnel and an orderly and safe evacuation of Afghans who helped our troops, unquote. He also said that he had told Blinken to support Ghani and other Afghan leaders, quote, as they seek to prevent further bloodshed and pursue a political statement, unquote. The Taliban took Kabul the next day. What the hell? Yeah. 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 It, 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 again, I, you know, the question is dishonesty or incompetence. And, and probably the answer is both. Um, a, a interesting uh, nugget that we pulled out in, in the book was similar to this was that only uh, I think one or two days before the uh, Kabul completely collapsed, the U.S. Embassy was still putting out messages on social media with the hashtag ceasefire now. It just they were just so just so like just this this naive worldview. But I think the crazy thing is it, there, there was just this whole complete naivete about the nature of the threat and, and everything else we were facing, too. Uh, and maybe not so much with uh, with Biden, because it doesn't seem like he cared at all, but with uh um, you know, for example, the acting ambassador um, of the uh, U.S. embassy in Kabul, who uh, when U.S. troops were trying to push for uh, a drawdown of the footprint, because in early August there were 600 troops there, but over 2,000 diplomats. There were almost four diplomats to every soldier designed to protect them as the Taliban was closing in. And uh, the acting ambassador at the time pushed back and said, no, 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 we're going to have an embassy here because... Uh, I think the direct quote was, how can we influence democracy in Afghanistan under the Taliban if we don't have an embassy? Um, so it's just this complete, um, it, this was an, an amateur operation from start to finish. Um, and it was chaotic. It was brutal. Um, it was it was um, just uh, coarse and ultimately it was deadly. 
Yeah, I mean, we're we're an hour in. So before we wrap up, uh, Jerry, first I'll come to you, and James, then to you. How do we sum this shit show up? And what, what, how would you sum it up? Yeah, well, as our book lays out, I, I think that this this disaster ultimately ultimately lays at the feet of, of the commander in chief, who is President Biden. Um, obviously, there were 20 years of mistakes made during this war, um, but it did not have to end the way that it did. Um, and it was because of decisions that President Biden made that it ended up going the way that it did. A conditionless withdrawal from Afghanistan, a complete and total failure to plan about how we would fulfill our promises to Americans and to all of the Afghans that had fought alongside the United States for 20 years. Um, giving up Bagram, which ensured that uh, we would not be able to do a safe and effective evacuation. Um, and giving up Bagram, of course, like I mentioned, also ensured that when the Taliban took Bagram, they emptied those prisons and freed those thousands of terrorists. Um, one of those terrorists being uh, someone that had tried to conduct a terrorist attack in New Delhi um, and had to be stopped by Indian intelligence and the CIA. We finally get the guy behind bars only for the Taliban to free him and for him to go and kill Americans and, and Afghan civilians at the gate. And then, of course, putting ourselves in a position where we had to rely upon the Taliban to provide security with the Taliban making decisions about who made it through that Taliban gauntlet and who didn't. Um, and at the end of 20 years of war, you had the Taliban back in charge. Members of the Taliban, uh, some of them are also members of Al Qaeda. You have the Taliban funding Al Qaeda. Uh, you have Al Qaeda training camps now in Afghanistan. And we've had a more dangerous world as a result of this. I mean, we lay out a case in our book that uh, Vladimir Putin um, very likely made his decision to finally uh, conduct a full invasion of Ukraine because of how the US and NATO looked weak and looked like they were in a shambles. And then, of course, the Chinese uh, government taking advantage of this to get more aggressive on the world stage, and I think to inch closer to its invasion of Taiwan. So this was a debacle, it was a disaster. Um, and because of the decisions that President Biden made in 2021, we live in a, a more dangerous world now in 2023. Yeah, I'll, um, I think that was very eloquently put. I think that what I would add to that um, is just that one of the reasons, you know, as you mentioned, kind of the very beginning uh, of this podcast, um, or as you asked, um, and we mentioned at the very beginning of this podcast, one of the reasons that we wrote this book was because it's been whitewashed a bit on the um, on the national stage here in the United States. Uh, it's the administration has refused to grapple with the foreign policy and the national security impacts of this decision on the entire world. Um, and, uh, and we thought that the stories of the, the men and women who did everything that they could to save people and, and what they faced due to those mistakes needed to be told. And um, if you were to group the book into three, if you group Kabul into three different sections, the first, I guess, would be um, everything 
leading up to this disaster, showing that um, it didn't have to happen, it wasn't inevitable, um, and that it was solely uh, the product of just a very toxic combination of uh, ignorance and self-assurance from um, the administration and policymakers in Washington, D.C. Um, the second part would be just vivid detail, as you mentioned, just sometimes horrific detail about everything that flowed to ordinary people who didn't deserve it um, because, because of those decisions. And then um, we can finish with those final chapters showing um, exactly what this means for the world to come. And uh, ultimately, our goal is to try and rewrote this book because people need to be held accountable in Washington, D.C. And um, those, those memories and that, that those accounts need to be preserved. And the American people and, and people across the world need a warning of, of uh, what can come if, if this is allowed to, you know, happen again. And so I would encourage people to read it. Um, it's, it's anywhere books are sold it, it, on Amazon as well. Um, and, uh, and thank you very much, Kushala. This was, this was a lot of fun. You know what this, I, I, I'll say this, what disturbed me the most is on page 291 of your book, where you guys say, never forget. And it's a paragraph I want to read. And I want to remind people because Indians, they will relate to this because India, by and large, India is a very patriotic society. The Indians are, Indians don't even, uh, you know, the word nationalism means very different things in India and very different things in the West. Like in India, nationalism is not a pejorative because it, it has a colonial uh, past. So for oh, yeah. uh, for Indian being a nationalist is fighting against the col colonizer. So they don't consider it to be a pejorative. So many times if you meet an Indian, it's very important. Americans also understand this. That when an Indian says I'm a nationalist, they basically in the Western sense, they mean not... Patriot. Patriot. Yeah, it's, it's pretty much a patriot. That's what they mean. But this hurt me when you guys say in the book, the families we interviewed made one thing painfully clear. The president of the United States didn't just fail to pay proper respect to those 13 fallen warriors. He actively disrespected them. To this day, he still hasn't said their names out loud and has mentioned them only in one, two written statements. This is disgusting. See, this, this thing, this an Indian would not take lightly. It doesn't matter which part of the world. A fallen soldier is respected. A soldier who fights for the nation is respected. And uh, to see uh, a section of Western society in general, and I know this is a disease that has engulfed the West in general. I'm not going to take the name of a journalist in Canada who told me off the record that Man, now, if you put, if you are, and, and I'm going to say this openly, if you're from the left and you put up the flag of your country, you're judged. If this is what uh, the politics in the West has come down to, that if you have an American flag, a Canadian flag, a British flag, that you're someone from the right wing. Uh, since when did patriotism become a right wing value? Right. I mean, in India, it's a left and right value, both. We're all patriots in India. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was, it was probably one of the most uh, disgusting things that we uncovered when we were writing this book. And as as someone who served over there, um, it was you know I have friends who um, paid the, the you know full measure of devotion to the United States and and died there. Uh, it was it was just um, 
not something I can ever take lightly or, or ever, it's unforgivable. And I'll just note, you know, to close out that we, we dedicated the book um, to those 13 service members um, and to and to all of the uh, the Americans who gave their lives in Afghanistan over 20 years um, because we wanted to pay tribute to them. And and, uh, you know, even if even if the Biden administration hasn't paid proper tribute, um, you know, we are and we know that um, most Americans um agree that uh, the memories of those 13, you know, deserve to be honored properly. Yeah, and, and, and everybody should appreciate that. And I'm glad you guys mentioned their names in the end of the book. So, you know, it was a painful read. I, I told you guys off offline too, when I met, uh, you know, when we started that I was so angry when I was done reading this book. I was, that, that's the only emotion I had, anger. And I'm not even American. And I was angry. So I can only imagine if an average American reads this, what the hell they're going to feel after reading this. So, so I, I, I applaud both of you for writing this book. And, and, and I look forward to meeting you two again next time when I'm in Washington. Please do. Yeah, we'll go to Rasika again, maybe. Yeah, man, we have to go. <laughs> we should make it a yearly, yearly thing. Uh, yeah. James, Jerry, Anang, uh, and, uh, and, and Kushal's dinner at Rasika. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Beautiful. I love Thanks it. Thanks very much for having us on, Kishal. Yeah. All right, guys. We'll wrap today's discussion up once again. Buy this book. So uh, in the description of the podcast, if you're watching this on YouTube, you will see the link there. Click the link. Go and buy the book. And if you're listening to this on Spotify, iTunes, wherever you are, you will see the same links in the description. You can also follow uh, uh, Jerry and James on social media. I'll, I have all the details. I will put them in the description of the podcast. This is a very important book for every Indian. And I'll explain why. Indians should know what the American state does. So for us to formulate our policies, it's very important to know what the American state does. So when we read such books, we get aware of how the American state apparatus performs and how our foreign policy should be judged. It also shows the good side of the average American, which we should appreciate. So for, to all of you out there, please buy this book. And if possible, please support the Charvak podcast. You guys know this podcast is a member-driven podcast. It only runs on member donations, not on ad revenue. So please, if possible, do join the membership program. Doesn't matter, YouTube, Patreon, Fanmo, wherever you are, or buy the podcast merchandise. And if you can't do anything of that and you're an audio listener, leave a rating on Spotify, iTunes, wherever you are, or just like the video or subscribe to the Charvak Podcast YouTube channel. I'll see you guys next time. Until then, namaste, take care. Bye.